rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. This is Bob Hutchins, and I am talking to Jason Elam today. He is the host of the Messy Spirituality Podcast, and we have a lot in common, so I'm excited about talking about some of that today and hearing his journey of how he came to create and regularly engage with his guests on the Messy Spirituality Podcast. If you haven't listened to it, put it on your list. Um, I think if you like what I've been talking about and if you like Rumors of Grace and some of the other guests I have, you will love Jason's podcast. So before we start, I want to tell you a little bit about Jason and his background. He is a grateful husband. He's a proud dad. And Jason is captivated by Jesus. After more than 20 years of work in the local church, he currently does host the Messy Spirituality Podcast, and he's the author of an upcoming book, which we're going to talk about more later in the podcast, called Bartenders of Grace, Sharing the Life and Love of Jesus After Deconstruction. And that's scheduled for release in December of 2019, so coming up in just a few months. Uh, Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Where are you calling from? I am near Birmingham, Alabama, just about 45 minutes north. Okay, so you're just down the road from Nashville a little ways. Um, yeah. Yeah, so is that where you've been for a while? You grew up there? You're a native? Tell me a little bit about the background of who is Jason and where he comes from. I actually started off near Dayton, Ohio. I lived there for the first 14 years of my life, and then we kind of followed my dad as his job moved us around constantly. Moved from Ohio to New Jersey, lived there for a couple of years, moved to Richmond, Virginia, only lived there about six months, and then moved to Alabama halfway through my last year in high school. Mm. And I've been here ever since. And I'm assuming you have a family there, and you've, you've been doing church work? That's right, yeah. I've got uh, my wife, Brandy, is awesome. She's fantastic. Uh, she has worked in the telecommunications industry. She worked for AT&T for 15 years. Mm. Uh, she now works from home, which is a treat for all of us. Uh, we have four kids, uh, two that were hers, one that was mine, and one that is ours. <laughs> and uh, we've we've done a lot of church work together, uh, but we both did church work before we got together as well. That's fantastic. Now, I don't want people to get too squeamish because a lot of listeners to this show, when we talk about someone that's in church work and has been doing it for 20 years and feels good about it, that makes them a little nervous. So uh, <laughs> I'm only half kidding. Uh, we have a ver- I can completely relate to that feeling. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, we, we have a very diverse listener to, to this program, so, so I hopefully that doesn't offend anyone. But I want to dive into that because, um, you know, you're doing the Messy Spirituality uh, podcast now, and I know some of the guests, and I've listened to it, and um, it it may not be your average um, happy-go-lucky church evangelical church worker, right? Um, right. You interview lots of different people on their spiritual journey and on their path. So let's let's start with okay, how did you go from where you are now, and let's let's backtrack what. 
What has been your faith journey? Did you grow up in the church? Have you always been a Christian? Um, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, when I was about seven years old, um, I was our family attended West Carrollton Church of the Nazarene near Dayton, Ohio, mm-hmm. and I went to a children's revival. I still remember the couple's name, Reverend and Betty Woods. They were sweet, sweet, well-intentioned people. Uh, at the end of uh, the children's revival, they, of course, did an altar call. They talked to us about hell and you know how you obviously don't want to go there. And uh, again, I think they were very well-intentioned people. But the message that I took away from that evening was, pray this prayer so you don't burn in hell for eternity because the God who loves you will torch you if you don't love him back. Mm. And uh, so I, I went forward. I was later baptized in that church, um, spent most of my life in churches. Uh, when I was 20 years old, um, I was a washed up, 20 year old, washed up former professional wrestler with a bad knee. And <laughs> okay, now, uh, now stop. <laughs> stop right there. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Former professional wrestler. That's right. Yeah. All right. You got. Uh, you got to give me I'm, a quick background. Quick background. Come on. Sure. When I was a kid, um, I was a huge wrestling fan. I got into wrestling right around WrestleMania three, which was Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant. Mm-hmm. That That's was my really era. <laughs> okay. Good. So you you know where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was so excited. I was such a Hulkamaniac, and. Um, lived that. I mean, that was, I lived and died based on what was happening on superstars of wrestling, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, so as soon as I was old enough, I went to a wrestling school and, um, started a career in professional wrestling. The problem is I was never really that good at it. (laughs) I wanted to do it really bad. Were you the unnamed guy that always got beat? (laughs) That's exactly who I was. Now on local shows, uh, many of which I ran myself. I was a champion, <laughs> but on WWF TV back in 1994, there's actually a video you can find of Jason Voltaire versus Ludwig Borga mm-hmm. on uh, Superstars of Wrestling with Vince McMahon calling the match. And okay. uh, you can actually see me and see that I'm not lying when I tell you this is not humility. I was honestly not good at it. So you made um, so you made it to the WWF. Yeah, I had one match. There you go, and that, that's all it took, right? <laughs> that's all it took to convince me this was a really bad idea. When I watched that video, I was completely humiliated and decided I wasn't doing that anymore. No, really, I local uh, I wrestled on local shows for a couple of years and uh, got injured and could never run as fast or jump as high again. And just uh, I was struggling to keep my head above water anyway, and with the injury, it was just insurmountable. But that led me to a good place because uh, I ended up uh, basically with nothing. I had an apartment I couldn't afford. I had cars I couldn't afford. Uh, I called my mother up on Mother's Day of 1996 and said, uh, you know, I I love you. Happy Mother's Day. I'm sorry I cannot afford to buy you a present. And she said, all I want is for you to come with me to church. And I did. And um, that was the day that I, I really felt like God called me into ministry. Um, when I really had nothing to offer and I really felt very useless, but I felt like, um, something that day drew me into, um, vocational ministry, uh, for the next 20 something years. Wow. So how, what was that without going into detail, what was that journey like? Was it, uh, all in one church? Was it one denomination? Were you always Nazarene or what, what was the, 
What was that 20 year period like? Now I'm really a spiritual mutt. I was raised in the Nazarene church, but once we left Ohio, I don't think I ever attended another Nazarene church after that. We kind of bounced around between the Assemblies of God, Church of God, um, and then when we settled in, in Alabama, we went to a Southern Baptist church. So my license and ordination were Southern Baptist. Mm. Um, not too long ago, I uh, relinquished those, and so I'm no longer licensed and ordained, but uh, I was uh, up until just a couple of months ago. Okay. And um, what what was it that, you know, obviously you didn't just have a, have a, have a prosperous ministry career and then start Messy Spirituality podcast <laughs> and relinquish your ordination rights. What, what was that journey? Talk to me about, you know, I, th- I find it interesting that those of us who, who are spiritual mutts, who have a pretty wide uh, range of denominational engagements over our faith journey, um, a lot of us come to some interesting conclusions, and, and obviously you've con- come to some and, and are still walking on that journey. But talk to me about what was the process? Like, what was there an event that happened in your life that started you kind of reevaluating what you believed, or were you never a uh, fell into the sin of certainty and you were always questioning? Oh, no, I was absolutely uh, neck deep in the sin of certainty. I uh, was often wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> I could, I was so full of myself, I could strut sitting down. Um, it was basically for me, my faith journey is exactly with the name of the podcast. It's, it's messy spirituality. Um, I was so sure of absolutely everything. And I, honestly, Bob, the older I get, the less sure of anything I am. Yes. Um, I think that's what kind of drew the line for me was uh, I could no longer be as certain about things as people wanted me to be. Um, and, you know, it seems like in local church ministry, and this isn't true everywhere, but uh, especially in Southern Baptist churches in Alabama, especially small ones, they really want you to be, you know, the congregations really want you to be, or at least present the image that you are absolutely certain because they want a rock to hang on to. They want somebody who's confident that he knows the answer to make them feel better when they need answers. And Mm. the reality is those answers have to come from Jesus. uh, And those answers have to come from God himself or herself or however we choose to God's self. Um, But we, anybody who pretends to have all the answers um, is playing a game. Mm. Uh, they're fooling themselves. And I just couldn't fool people like that anymore. It didn't feel sincere to me. Once I realized that many of the answers I'd been preaching for years uh, probably weren't the case. Uh, I, it started for me with um, the doctor, doctrine of uh, eternal conscious torment. Mm. Um, you know, I, I couldn't see how it could be justice for God to punish someone for all of eternity the millions of years that could entail for something they had done in a 70 year, 80 year lifespan. Right. Uh, Also there's the whole idea of God at his or her essence being absolute, complete, total love um, rejecting somebody because they were born into a family that uh, prayed to another name or was born in a country that did not have the gospel or something along those lines. And the more I dug into those things, the less confidently I could preach them. Now, here's the problem for me. If, if you're in a Southern Baptist church in Alabama, um, 
and and you've really kind of made your name on preaching dynamic hellfire and brimstone sermons. When you start to doubt all of that, it takes the edge off the preaching. And, you know, if, if you're preaching something you don't believe, then people don't don't want to follow anymore. And honestly, I just got to the point where mm. I realized nobody should have been following me in the first place. Right. Um, but really that happened for me when I hit rock bottom. In 2007, I went through a divorce. Mm. And man, um, people that had been my biggest fans and, and cheered the cheerleaders in the ministry didn't want anything to do with me anymore. Mm. And I, I did have one pastor friend who, who reached out to me and loved me and you know, continued to give me invitations to preach to his church. Uh, but other than that, the invitations dried up, the doors closed, and my friends got really scarce. Um, I was operating in a church setting that did not allow for failure or even perceived failure. It didn't allow for people to make mistakes. Uh, we expected perfection from our clergy, and when that did not uh, prove to be the case, we really wanted to sweep it under the rug. But you know what we do with uh, ministers when they go through difficult times? We tend to sweep them under the rug, not just their issues. And that was certainly the case. Uh, I, I'm not bitter about that now. I, I love and forgive everybody involved. And, and listen, I'm, I'm a victim of my own mistakes. But um, it really crystallized the need in my life uh, for grace. Mm. And I needed to experience the real love of God as revealed through his people during that season of my life uh, more than I ever had. And once I saw my need for grace and I felt his or God's unconditional love in the midst of that season, man, um, I, I just filled up with it and it leaked. And, uh, you know, when you start uh, experiencing grace, you just want to give it away. Right. And that has kind of become uh, my mantra. I just want to pour out grace uh, everywhere that I go. Now, it's not always easy and I'm not always great at it. I, I definitely rely on God for that every moment of every day. But would you during say, that season where I went through the divorce, uh, I needed it. Definitely. Yeah. Would you say that that season when you went through the divorce, I'm sure there was some extreme pain and suffering and you and your former wife and your family, I'm sure that that yeah. was a very painful time for you and all involved. Um, I have found, for those of us who have gone through painful experiences like that, there's almost like an awakening on the other side. There's this you know, universal human experience that these seasons of, quote, death bring a, a resurrection that uh, looks looks and feels very different. It's almost like you wake up to a new reality. Um, that's what death causes, I think, and I think that's, I've said this before on the podcast, I think that's what the crucifixion is all about. It's the arch, it's an archetypal experience of humanity. Um, yep. And was that your experience, or was it a gradual thing after that? Um, it was a little bit gradual for me because I I kept reverting back to the legalism mm. of my past. So you doubled down, um, you know, when I went the other way. Yeah, I think I did, and I beat myself up with it. You know, up until the divorce, I was really no. I was the preacher that people would bring in, the pastors would bring into a local church when they wanted their congregation beat up. Mm. When they wanted the the folks, you know, that were challenging their authority or or um, not towing the doctrinal line, they would bring me in. Because, let, me guess, you know, the, let me guess, you preached hard against divorce. 
I preach hard against divorce. I preach hard against pretty much everything you can preach hard against. Some people have referred to the Bible as the sword of the spirit. In my hand, it was a bludgeoning instrument. Mm -hmm. And I would just come in and just beat people senseless with the Bible uh, in order to get a good response at the altar call because that's what fed my ego and made me feel better about myself. You know, I was living in such rejection that that's what I did in order to meet my emotional need for significance. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, when the divorce happened and when my life fell apart and when my friends walked away, um, I, I looked up and found a God who didn't care about any of the pretense, who wasn't impressed with my ministry, uh, who never thought I had it all together to begin with, but had loved me from day one. Mm. And when I started to let that kind of love into my heart, it, it changed a lot of that. Uh, insignificance that I was feeling and a lot of the rejection I was living in. Now, I struggle with rejection every day of my life. But I can tell you now that I believe in the love of God way beyond a theory. It really is an experience in my life that I really don't think I'd be here today without it. Beautiful. And then, so so what what... At what point then in this gradual journey did you go from kind of doubling down after the divorce, getting being more legalistic, to then going the other way, saying, oh, maybe I don't? What was the turning point for you? You know, I think it was just a, uh, just a awakening to the love of God in my own life. Um, when my wife, my current wife and I got married, uh, you know, Brandy loved me. She knew all the worst parts of me and she loved me completely. And really it's her love that informs my complete belief in the doctrine of unconditional love because she knows all my flaws and foibles. Um, she knows uh, stuff that nobody else knows about me, but she loves me so completely and so fully. And I think that the fact that she loved me made me feel worthy of love mm. And that opened the door for God to convince me again, like I said, uh, like the story of the, the, the prodigal son, that we can go off and make a complete mess of our lives. And I, I was like that prodigal son practicing my repentance speech on the way home. And God just covered me with love. And he used my wife to do that. He, he used my kids to do that. But more than anything now, it's just uh, it's just. He loves me so completely, and he doesn't allow me, and I keep saying he, I'm sorry, that's habit. Uh, I know that God is not a man or a woman, but um, God is spirit. But God loves me so completely that uh, there's just no room for those insecurities in that relationship. I have a lot of them in all my other relationships, but really it was the love of my wife that transformed oh, me. You know, it, uh, I've, I've people get sick of me hearing this, but I quote Richard Rohr a lot, and he says, yeah. you know, great pain and or great love are the only two things that transforms us. Uh, and yeah. for you, it sounds like a beautiful combination of both. Absolutely, that's wonderful. So, um, what were what were the first things to go? Okay, let's talk about your quote heresy. What were the first <laughs> things that you had to let go of? Um, you embraced this overwhelming, unconditional love of the divine. What then did you, in, in that embracing, what did you have to let go? 
Well, like I said, eternal conscious torment was the first thing to go. Uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, I had to let go of that. Seeing God as judge, uh, as, as far as a legalistic, strict, uh, dare I say, John Calvin mm-hmm. uh, type judge, um, I had to let that go in order to really see God as father, mother, nurturer, provider, as love. Um, that was a struggle for me. The most recent thing has been inerrancy of scripture. Yeah. And that was a real struggle. And that took me years and years and years. And I'm still struggling with it because, uh, when I'm defending, uh, letting go of the inerrancy of scripture so often I'm quoting scripture to do it. (laughs) (laughs) But the Bible says this. (laughs) Exactly. Right. The Bible itself says. (laughs) Yeah. That's that, you know, for those of us who've brought up uh, and more in a very uh, fundamental uh, Baptist-oriented Bible church type. That's uh, that's the fourth member of the Trinity, and uh, you know you you take that away, and that's what the whole foundation and indoctrination is built on. And yet, yeah. um, finding beauty uh, in the nuances of Scripture. You know, people say yeah. all the time. You know, I had Pete Ends on the on the podcast recently. And I heard that it was great. Thank you. And I mean, he he's such an amazing mind, and he'll tell you it's like I love and appreciate Scripture now more than ever before. Um, but I know, you know, he would say this. He would say, "I know beyond the shadow of a doubt." This is not inerrant. As a matter of fact, nobody intended it to be inerrant. And if you were to, you know, if you had a time machine and go back and say, um, hey, Paul, hey, Matthew, hey, Isaiah, you know those letters that you're writing to your friends? Um, and a couple thousand years from now, we're going to say that they're perfect and they're from the very mouth <laughs> of God. Um, right. You know, those guys would look at you like, are you kidding me? Um and so I think appreciating the nuances and appreciating um, what the what the scriptures uh, and wisdom and truth and love uh, they do have to give us, um, I think, opens up a whole new world when you're not reading it uh, in the light of complete inerrancy. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly how I feel about it. I, as Pete N said to you on that episode. I appreciate and love the scriptures now more than I ever have, but there was a period in my life, really half of my life, that I exalted the scriptures over Jesus himself, Right, and I would take Paul to argue with Jesus, um, and, and something happened a few years ago where it just kind of hit me that Paul and Jesus were not equals, right. and by making all scripture inerrant, or by holding it up higher than Christ himself, that that's basically what I was saying, was that Paul and Jesus were, were equals and on equal footing of revelation and understanding. And I just no longer believe that to be the case. I think Paul was a man with um, baggage and a filter that he saw the world through, just like all of us, and was prone to make mistakes. Some of them may have made it into his writing, some of them may not. Uh, but I know that if I were writing letters to my friends, I wouldn't want the pressure of people studying that 2,000 years later right. and building their lives on it. That, that's, yeah. that's dangerous stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So, so then, then let's, um, if you don't mind me asking, what you just said uh, in the context of, quote, church ministry probably wasn't real popular. Is that why you relinquished your, your ordination recently, or is that, something, is that something else? Do you want to talk about that? Sure. 
two, two things happened. Um, the first was about a year ago. Um, I just couldn't do the church service thing anymore. And so our church, which was a non-denominational church at that time, a very small non-denominational church in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. And uh, we made a decision as a church body that we weren't going to just do church services on Sunday morning anymore. We asked the community what they needed rather than just having church and expected them to come. Well, what our community needed was food. Hmm. And so we converted our Sunday morning church service to a open market, like a farmer's market style setup wow. in our sanctuary wow. where people could come and shop for free uh, for the food that they needed for themselves and their families. Uh, we had a certain number that we could take based on the resources available. And we did that every two weeks. And eventually once the market family started coming regularly and we started building some relationships, some of them asked us to have a worship service that they could come to. Mm. And we did that on the last Sunday of each month. Um, so that was the shift away from local church, That's you know, beautiful. conventional local church ministry. And I love that. Unfortunately, uh, we realized um, in May that we just financially couldn't sustain it. I, I really, you know, all of our offerings were going towards that. And uh, my wife and I and some friends were paying for the building and utilities out of pocket because I didn't feel right asking money for or asking for money from people to pay facilities. Uh, we were all volunteers. Nobody was getting paid. And uh, it just wasn't financially sustainable, unfortunately. Uh, the second thing that happened is, um, you know, part of uh, me buying into the gospel of inclusion uh, for me meant that I didn't need to have a license and ordination in an organization that would not allow uh, my wife or another woman uh, to have that same privilege. Mm. And um, so I, I just felt like it was time for me to let that go. Got it. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm sure I will preach and, and minister uh, until my dying day. I don't think it's going to happen in the context of a local church setting. Sure. I think it's going to look more like that market. And I don't need a piece of paper to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And so then I guess that leads us to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Uh, that is a, a platform and an outlet for you to, to, to share what you feel that God has done in your life and is doing and or um, engage with those people uh, to provide a safe place to explore their own questions as well. So talk to me a little bit about that. What, did that, what has that experience been like for you? It's been incredible. Um, I am a huge fan of just podcasting in general. Uh, when I was going through uh, my, what we call, I guess, deconstruction process, um, it was a podcast really that helped me fully embrace the love of God. I was listening to, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Martin. Yes, absolutely. I was listening to him interview Brad Jerzak. Mm. And I was, I was listening to that at my local gym. I was walking around the track listening to a podcast and just listening to those two talk about the love of God. I, I had an encounter. Uh, I'm sure the people in the gym thought I was insane because I was literally just crying, just tears streaming down my face. It was like waves of liquid love were slamming into me as God just reminded me that uh, even though my theology had changed and even though ministry role had changed and, and we really didn't have that many people uh, who wanted to hear anything I had to say at that point coming on Sunday morning. But God loved me. Mm. That the creator of the universe um, 
would run to me like that prodigal father to the prodigal son and just love me. And it just blew me away. And so that experience listening to a podcast just made me fall in love with podcasts. Mm. And also, honestly, there were some people that I just wanted to have conversations with, and the <laughs> podcast was a good excuse to do that. Isn't you may that great? have experienced some of that yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, it shocked me. Uh, I know we probably have a lot of people listening to us today who don't have a podcast. I highly recommend it because uh, I, I don't think anybody's ever told me no about coming on the podcast. If there are yeah. people you want to talk to, get a podcast. Yeah, that's what someone and, that's and what someone said and that's 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 exactly right. I mean, you're I feel like I'm talking to in a mirror right now listening to you because <laughs> that you know, someone said if you ever if you ever wanted to talk to almost anybody that you dreamed of talking to, get a podcast because almost no one has said no. Uh, sure. you know, you might have to schedule them out a couple of months, but uh, sure. But everybody wants to, um, you know, get free publicity and talk, and you know, I think the beauty of the beauty of, of of podcasting, and I think the internet in general, is it's just it levels a playing field. So yep. there's no one in control. There's no uh, outside voices in the form of advertising or, or channel ownership or kind of governing what can be said or there's no angle or the, you know, most, most of the podcasters are not there because they're being paid tons of money. Um, so it's just a beautiful open environment that you have the freedom to, to say and do almost anything you want. So I love it. I do too. And just because I've fell in love with the podcast genre so hard, I, I wanted to hear people's stories of their own deconstruction process and what they went through and where they ended up. And, uh, I've had some of the best conversations, yes. uh, just asking questions yes. and, uh, seeing where God leads us. Yeah. It's same. Incredible. Same, same. I had Brad Jerzak on a, a few episodes back and, um, I, I hope to have other people that are, that are in that, uh, same kind of venue. And I, and I love the diversity of, of hearing people's journeys, um, you know, uh, having uh, David, the naked pastor, on. I don't know if you've ever followed him and seen any of his, his I have, stuff. Yeah, and uh, he's got. I admire a, him a lot. He, he's from Canada and was in ministry many years. And got yeah, it. he and Brad Jerzak are good friends. So uh, it was Brad that had first mentioned the naked pastor on Facebook or somewhere. And yeah. uh, what has been the most? And um, I, shocking incredible yeah what has been the most shocking response and maybe i shouldn't use the word shocking but what's been kind of the most memorable response to your where you are right now and some of the things you talk about in um uh, in your podcast the messy spirituality podcast and since you've kind of come to where you are i know you probably had um, former people think you've gone off the deep end. You've had people on the other extreme trying to embrace you. You know, one of the things I struggle with personally, and I'll just be real honest, uh, and I've talked to others who are on this journey, is, you know, we have a tendency to point fingers and go from trade one form of fundamentalism for another. And um, what you're talking about is, you know, beautiful uh, the Jesus way of, of, of kindness and unconditional love, um, which it should, your spiritual journey, and as, as you grow and get older, it should mold you into a more loving and kind person. Talk to me yeah. a little bit about your struggle with that. Maybe other people struggle with you. How, do, how are you sorting through those issues right now? 
Well, I'll tell you, one of the big struggles for me is that I've always been kind of a political junkie. Mm-mm. And I've always I've always <laughs> loved politics. Well, I don't know if you noticed or not, Bob, but uh, this country really changed a few <laughs> years back uh, on politics. And, yeah. and really, every statement is interpreted politically. Right. And so, you know, when I make a statement about, you know, um, welcoming the stranger, it means something different than it did five years ago. Right. Right. Um, and so push back on the podcast. Honestly, I don't think I've ever had a negative thing said to me mm-hmm. about the podcast um, or any interview or any topic that we've ever touched. I have, I gotten negative feedback from former parishioners that left the church when we stopped preaching hell. Absolutely. Um, and that's so hurtful because, you know, when God uh, transcends all of your rejection with love, mm. you just love people so much that it yeah. kills you that, that they don't want to be with you anymore. And so uh, there's actually a couple uh, that was part of our church from the very beginning that I loved. I mean, they were like, I have, I have great parents, but they were like second parents to me. Mm-hmm. And um, there came a point where they just said, if you're not willing to preach that homosexuality is a sin that sends people to hell, if you're not willing to preach that God will punish that rebellion with eternal damnation, then we can't be here anymore. Wow. And that was like, you know, nails on a chalkboard, ripping a Band-Aid off, all the unpleasant things you can think of. It, it was really like having my arm amputated because mm. I love these people. Sure. Um, but I just couldn't be that person anymore. Yeah, yeah um, that's hard. I know you've had Keith Giles on. Yep. Keith. It has been so helpful mm-hmm. for me to unpack the political junkie. Mm-hmm. And he's constantly reminding me um, that these are Jesus issues. These are kingdom issues. These are not political issues. And when we allow them to be mere political issues, they just get twisted and used against someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, the hardest thing for me has been understanding there is no them. There's only us. Right, right. And I have to remind myself of that just about every single day. Yeah, part of that, I think for me, and, and, and I don't know if you relate to this, is that from the time you're a child, there is a dialogue going on in your brain constantly when you engage with other human beings. And that dialogue is, okay, is this a person in or out? Is this a person a Christian or a non-Christian? Um, right. I, do I need to be witnessing to them? Um, is this person going to be in heaven? Is this person going to be in hell? Um, I've become really close to this friend, and I haven't shared Jesus with them. Now I feel guilty. There's this really, in my mind, it's a very destructive dialogue that when you are totally, completely free from that, that you just see another human being as just who they are, another human being, and there is no right. us or them or Christian, or non-Christian, or black, or white, or Republican, Democrat. There's just one human being talking with another human being. There's That's such right. freedom in that, and that is that was the most, um, I guess, uh, liberating thing for me uh, in this process. Can you relate to that at all? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly uh, where I landed uh, on those kind of issues. And and I would even go to say there's there's no difference between gay and straight. Right. Right. Um, because there's only human beings created in the image of God uh, to be loved. Right. And if I understand that my role here 
is just to love people, uh, to prove the love of God to the world, not with any agenda, not to get them to pray a prayer or join a church or, or even read the Bible, but just to be that living epistle of the love of God. Um, man, that makes every day exciting. There's no work in that. There's no drudgery in that. Now, am I going to fail at that sometimes? Of course. Yeah, I'll fail at that probably every day. Mm. But uh, it doesn't feel like work. Really, at this point, it's just an overflow mm. of the love of God. Again, walking around that track at the gym, listening to Brad and Jonathan talk mm. about the love of God. Mm. Uh, and that's, so that, that's just an incredible privilege. That's amazing. And, and, and in your journey, Jason, as, as you go around, do you sense uh, that there are more and more men and women? Um, it seems to be there's a rumbling going on, and, I, and I've talked to several guests about this, and, it, and I don't think it's just because of, of the topic and my own journey and the people I talk to. I really observe that, that, that this generation and the ones that are coming behind are really thinking through and saying, that that doesn't make sense anymore. And if this is a loving God, we're going to have to rethink um, how things look and, and feel and the way we treat people. Do you feel like there's a shift going on, or do you think this is something that's been happening from from beginning of time? Well, I think there's always been some of it happening, mm-hmm. but I agree with you that there's uh, there's more of a shift now that's ever than has ever been observable in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, for me, uh, as a former church leader, I tell you, it scared me to death the statistics that showed how many nuns and duns mm. were represented in American society. And mm. the Bible Belt here, it's not really all that different. Mm-hmm. We might have a higher percentage of people attending church in Alabama on Sunday morning than the rest of the country. Um, that doesn't mean anything about how they interact with their neighbors, right? unfortunately. Right. Uh, and people see through that hypocrisy, there's a younger generation emerging that gives me so much hope for yes. the church. Yes. And most of them may not even call themselves Christian. Right. Right. I agree with you 100%. And, you know, I have kids of, of, of different uh, ages. Uh, they're kind of spread out. And it allows me to see, kind of a window to see into, you know, uh, the generational thought process. And so many, what's so beautiful about what you just said so many of the things that, you know, as as a man in the second half of his life is just just now waking up to, is almost native and built into the younger generation psyche. They don't even have to question those things. They don't even have to uh, make assumption of whether you know you love or treat or include someone uh, in an unconditional way, and yet. You know, for for us and where we are in our age, you and I, it's like, oh, I've awoken to 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 loving and being inclusive of people. Well, you know, this younger generation, like you said, gives them so so much hope to say they just love people. They seem to be able to love people well uh, a lot better than than we did. Uh, and I, that's I, right. They they're human too, and they will struggle with human situations and conditions as well. But. Um, I just love that, and it does give me a lot of hope as well. So I, I echo that for sure. And it feels like the the emerging generation, their default setting is to love and accept without question. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that proves to be true, that is going to be such uh, an, a force for good uh, for the kingdom of God. 
my my default setting has never been <laughs> love it accept people without question. There's so much of the old religion in my heart that still I, I have to remind myself constantly that that is the setting that I choose. Mm-hmm. It's not been a default in my life because for so long it was the whole us versus them. Right. Uh, and politics will do that to you too. So I had, I had it coming from a spiritual side and from a political side. Um, but the younger generation that seems to just fall back into that so naturally, so effortlessly, I'm, I'm jealous, but I'm so encouraged. Yes. Yes. I'm encouraged as well. Talk to me about some, um, you mentioned Brad Jerzak and Jonathan Martin discussion. What have been some some books, some some teaching, some podcasts? If you could just say, what are the top three resources that have helped you through this um, process and opened your eyes to a new reality? What what would they be? Well, I mentioned Keith Giles earlier. Uh, his book Jesus Untangled uh, opened my eyes on my own nationalism and the way that I while condemning partisan politics was very much an instrument of partisan politics mm. uh, from the pulpit rather than from a government office. And so that was revolutionary for me. Um, Brad Jerzak, there's actually three books of his that have been really impactful to me. Um, a More Christ-Like God uh, was one. Her Gates Will Never Be Shut was very foundational for me on the eternal conscious yes. torment discussion. And he's actually just released a new book called In mm. that I think is probably the best summation of where I've landed in my beliefs thus far. Um, now, again, those things are constantly changing. But when people ask me, you know, well, what do you believe? I'll give them that book mm. and, uh, and recommend it heartily. That's fantastic. So, so anything else? Those, those are, so Brad Jerzak and Keith Giles? <laughs> I, I will mention one other book to you because it's been really foundational for me here recently. A guy named Carl Forehand hmm. wrote a book called Apparent Faith hmm. that, um, you know, I thought when I first saw it, oh, that's cute. He wrote about his relationship with his kids and how it taught him about God. Yeah, that's true. Um, but it goes way beyond that. And it's really fantastic. I love it so much. And I got a chance to talk to him on our podcast. And we started talking about shadow work. Hmm. Is that a term you're familiar oh, with? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that was the first time I'd ever heard it. Mm-hmm. And that launched me into a study of shadow work and dealing with that imposter and, mm-hmm. you know, um, the things that we hide and the power that they have over us and, and learning to live in the light. Yes. And that's been transformational for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. I think what you come to when, you, when you're going f- through these stages, uh, one of the things that for me personally, and a lot of people who have come out of more stricter evangelical circles, is there's not a lot of room for self-awareness and self-work and shadow work, because in that construct and in that theology, um, you're born evil, and there's nothing good in you, so therefore, you know, the verse that I'm sure you preached is, you know, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. So therefore, you never focus on yourself or your own psychology or your own self-awareness because if anything good's going to come out of you, it, it's got to be Jesus only, right? So right. there's all of that stuff, um, which really is uh, horrendous for the psyche because you never take full responsibility for your own stuff. Um, you pass everything else off as the old man and the flesh and all that stuff. And there's really no self-awareness. There's just little self-awareness. At least that was my story. 
So yeah, no, that's my story as well. Yeah. So then you wake up one day and you're like, oh, well, maybe there is some stuff under the covers I need to deal with. And knowing that helps me to understand God even better. Was that your experience? And that's what, when you mentioned shadow and whether it's the Enneagram, whether it's anything else, these are all tools of of self-awareness. Would you agree? Absolutely. You know, Richard Rohr taught me a lot about the Enneagram and some of his work. Um, And that's been exceedingly helpful because, you know, you start realizing that some of the things that have always frustrated you about yourself are really just part of your makeup Mm -hmm. and they can be good or bad depending on the the perspective you take on them. And uh, it helped me understand myself, my wife, uh, and even my children, which you're not technically supposed right. to type them when they're young, <laughs> but we do it anyway, don't we? Yes, and, we do. um, and so that's helped a lot. Um, but you know, you're talking, we were talking about shadow work a minute ago. It's amazing to me that I read Brennan Manning for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I, I love Brennan Manning. Brennan was yep. one of my heroes. Yep. Um, and his book, the ragamuffin gospel, um, the tenderness of Jesus. So many of his books were so impactful to me. And, and now when I go back, I see him talking about shadow work in his books, mm-hmm. but I couldn't see it then mm-hmm. because, you know, we, again, we're reading things through a filter of our understanding, a religious veil that lies over our eyes. And I think that just kind of kept me from seeing it, or maybe I just wasn't ready at that point, mm-hmm. but now I can go back and appreciate that so much more. And then his final book, uh, all is grace. Have you read that Bob? I have read several of his books. I don't know that I've read that final one, though. Okay. His, his last book, uh, it was co-written with John Blaze, I believe, mm. um, where Brennan just lays it all out there. He says, you know what? I've been an alcoholic the entire time I've been writing these books. Yeah. Yep. And I have been on the wagon and off the wagon. Uh, David Leo Schultz uh, ro- makes movies yep. out in yep. Hollywood. Yeah, I know him. He made a great movie about uh, Rich Mullins. He made another one about Brennan. There's this powerful scene in the Brennan movie where Brennan has been to a bar. Uh, Instead of going home to his wife after he got home from a conference, he went straight to the bar in New Orleans. He gets wasted out of his mind. He wakes up on a street corner because they've tossed him out of the bar overnight. He's soaked in his own vomit and urine, reeking, uh, just coming out of that haze. And a little boy walks by him with his mother and looks down at him and says, and tries to talk to Brennan and the mother says, don't you talk to him. Don't you talk to that filth and pulls the kid on down the street. And the kid runs back to Brennan and holds out a hot dog and says, mister, do you want a hot dog? Mm. And, And Brennan kind of, you know, he's overwhelmed by this expression of grace. And the little boy says, what's your name? And Brennan in a fog coming out of that night of binge drinking Something deep inside come, breaks through his lips and says, I'm the one that Jesus loves. Mm. After a night full of drinking, smelling of his own urine and, and vomit on a street corner like a homeless person. Mm. And that was his default say, I am the one that Jesus loves. Mm. Man, I want that. Yeah, that, That's who I want to be. I, I want to have that kind of understanding of the love of God. I'm still far, far away from that. Mm. But I just thought that was such a beautiful picture. It is a beautiful picture. And, and you know, I, I'm always amazed that when, we, when you look at Scripture and life through some different lenses and a new way of seeing things, you know, I, that story reminds me uh, of, the, of the story of the prodigal son where you realize that 
the only way that that son experienced and could ever know the love of his father was to screw up really, really bad. Right. I think that's the story. That was the purpose of the story is he lived with his father and he didn't know it. The other brother did all the things right and didn't know it. Right. But the celebration came as a result of the son screwing up and making his way back home. And it's almost like, it's almost like the message is the brokenness, the screwing up, the pain, whatever's happened in your life, that's the doorway to really understanding the love of God. And uh, absolutely. And you know, the son coming home mm -hmm. did not change the heart of the father towards his son, Mm -mm. but it sure changed the heart of the son about his father. Yeah, it really did. It really did. And you know, um, that story that you just told about Brennan, I'm going to have to pick up that book now, uh, is, is beautiful, uh, because of what you said is (laughs) it wasn't, I was an alcoholic, Jesus saved me, and now I'm clean, and look at me going around the world telling people that he can do the same for them. It was right. in the midst of those books, of those teachings, of those lives being changed, af- even after writing the Ragamuffin Gospel, I was still yep. an alcoholic waking up on the streets. And that's a beautiful thing, that God would use a drunk ex-Catholic priest um, to really transform so many lives. Um, Absolutely. That, that's, yeah. that's, that's really, that's what it's all about, in my opinion. It's, it's beautiful. It really is. Never, yeah, he's, never too late. He's one of the, the patron saints of, of the tribe of ragamuffins <laughs> uh, that, that still cling to his work, along with Mike Iaconelli. Um, I, I don't know about you. I'm really into Mr. Rogers right now. Oh, I mean, yes. I just think that's such a beautiful demonstration yes. of what Christianity can be. Yes. Well, there's a new movie coming out. With Tom Hanks, yeah, that's right. I'm excited about that. So, talk to me about this book you're writing. What, what's, what, how did that come about? What is it? When's it going to be out? I know December, but talk to me a little bit about that. I know this sounds like uh, the the stock answer that Paul Young gives about the shack, but it's true. Uh, It really is a book that I I wanted to write for my wife and for my kids. Mm. Uh, To you know, my kids grew up in the midst of my deconstruction. Uh, they, they saw the me preaching hellfire and brimstone. Um, they were young when I went through the divorce, but um, they grew up in the aftermath of that. Um, they've grown up uh, in the midst of me planting a church and now in the midst of me closing a church. And they'll ask me questions. Well, what do you believe about this now? What do you believe about this now? And so I wanted to write a book about that journey and what I think the Christian life is. And, and to me, the title kind of says it all. We are bartenders of grace. Mm. We're not here to judge anybody. We're not here to hold anybody else accountable. We're not here to uh, enforce our way of life on anyone. We're here to welcome. We're here to love. And we're here to be um, a living reminder of a God who loves us all more than we can imagine, that shows grace to all, uh, that doesn't just love people when they're worthy, but loves people when they fail. And in the midst of that failure is when we need to love the most. And so I wanted to write that book to talk about that. But then it kind of took on a life of its own after people started asking me, as I'd share my deconstruction journey, people would say, well, you know, if there's, if there's no hell or if people don't go to hell for eternity, 
what's the point of following Jesus? And that is such a frustrating question to me. It's a natural question. It's a good question. But it's also frustrating because Jesus is so good. I'd follow him if, if, if when you died, that was the end. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that. But even if that were true, uh, Jesus' way works. Right. And so um, it's, it's all about living the love and the light and the life of Jesus mm-hmm. post-deconstruction. When you don't believe you have to or you'll go to hell. Mm-hmm. When you don't believe that the Bible is the perfect, blessed, and errant word of God, and you know you got to quote the King James sixteen eleven everywhere you go. When you don't feel like you have to read six chapters of the Bible a day, or God will be disappointed in you, and you'll have less anointing in your life. What do we do then? When all of that is stripped away, how do we follow Jesus? Mm-hmm. I had to write a book about it. Um, Guire Publishing has had a lot of interest in it. I'm still, still fuddling with the manuscript. Uh, as soon as I get to them, they'll make a decision about it. They've, they've been really interested and very generous and gracious to me about it. Uh, I'm hoping they'll publish it. And if not, I'll self-publish it. Uh, yeah. You were talking about podcasting being such an opportunity uh, to get our voices out and to have conversations that maybe, um, you know, a radio station wouldn't authorize. Well, self-publishing does the same thing. Yeah, we can absolutely. just put our heart on paper and release it to the world and people on the other side of the planet can read. Mm-hmm. Uh, what somebody, some broken down former redneck pastor slash pro wrestler <laughs> has been wrote uh, back in 2019, you know, we'll that's, have it forever. It'll be, it'll be interesting, but more than anything, it's for my kids and for my wife. That's awesome. And um, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, I know they can, however they listen to podcasts, they can go to the messy spirituality and look it up there. But do you have a website? Do you have a blog? What else are you doing? Yeah. Um, you can find me at jasonelam.org, J-A-S-O-N-E-L-A-M.org or messy spirituality.org. will get you there as well. I'm pretty active on social media. Um, Facebook is a circus, but those are my people. <laughs> and so I can't leave no matter how bad I want to. Um, all on Twitter, Instagram, all of it. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And is there anything is there anything else you'd like to say as we close out? Anything you'd like to offer people? I, I always like to leave uh, with an encouragement of, of my guests. So before I do that, is there is there anything else that you'd like to say to people who are who are struggling with some things that you've said, who may still be on the same journey? Um, anything like that? Yeah, just that it, it's not about you agreeing with me. It's not about you coming to the same place that I've come to in in my walk with God. It's not about any of that. You are loved and you're not alone. And while in the past we've built churches around uh, unanimity of doctrinal beliefs, I believe a day is coming when it's just going to be a table and the table is set for everyone. And it doesn't matter whether you agree with me or not. It doesn't matter if you're gay or you're straight. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or the Green Party. It doesn't matter. Uh, any of those things. Doesn't matter if you're an American or Canadian or Mexican or Guatemalan. There's a table, there's a seat at that table for you. And and it's not my table. And Bob, it's not your table. It's Jesus' table. And he said that all of us could come. And so I know that if you're listening today and you're going through a deconstruction process, maybe questioning some of the things that you've believed your whole life, and I know it's scary, and I know it can feel so lonely, but you're not alone. There are thousands, if not millions, of us around the world, we just haven't all found each other yet. Mm. And there's coming a day when we're all going to sit around that table and it's going to be so good. Mm. 
And uh, until then, we've got the internet. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And and again, thank you so much, Jason, for just loving people so well and not becoming bitter and not, um, you know, not becoming cynical. I know that that I'm sure you've had cynical moments, and I'm sure you struggled with that, but. Thank you for demonstrating to those of us who are on a similar journey how to do it well and how to love people well. That's such a gift um, that you give to us and it and, and on your podcast. And uh, I haven't obviously read your book yet, but I'm sure that's in there. That, that's a message that we need to hear. So thank you for that. Well, thank you, Bob, for giving me an opportunity to share with you today. I'm really excited about your podcast, Rumors of Grace. What a great name. <laughs> and, and and I look forward to diving into where that came from uh, yeah. on our podcast in a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. So those of you who who are just listening, what he's referring to is uh, Jason and I have decided to do a podcast swap. So uh, I said, you know, you interview me, I'll interview you. And and, and that, that seems to to hopefully work out really, really well. And I'm all about cross-pollinating and, and sharing when other people are, are doing really good work and, and are saying really great things and asking really good questions. So thanks again, Jason. And I look forward to, to talking with you really soon. I can't wait. Thanks, man. All right. Bye-bye.